Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. The headlines driving the conversations today are going to depend largely upon where you live, where you go, and who you follow on social media. So uh, here are what I believe will be the big four conversations of the day. If you're in the Twin Cities, then you know that there are parts of town that are boarded up and ringed with barbed wire. Why is that? Well, uh, while much of the world has actually moved on to other storylines, the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin Uh, who was charged with murder in the police custody death of George Floyd, begins today. For those of you who live in the Twin Cities, you already know that. Um, The rest of us uh, outside the Twin Cities are certainly praying for things to unfold in that trial in a way that is both peaceful and just. In a related thread this weekend was the anniversary of the Civil Rights Era Bloody Sunday, 56 years ago yesterday. Um, You would recognize the march across the Selma Bridge or the bridge at Selma, Alabama. Uh, And for the first time in those 56 years, John Lewis did not make that walk. Uh, If you are a fan of Oprah Winfrey or the dynamic formerly royal duo of Harry and Meghan, then I don't really need to tell you that there are headlines today related to them. Uh, in uh, in other years or uh, in other seasons, the headline might be that they are expecting a daughter. That was one of the things they shared in an exclusive interview with Oprah Winfrey. But the most stinging allegations that they made uh, are going to be related to racism in the royal family. And then I think uh, Megan's admittal of being suicidal when she was five months pregnant. I think that is likely to prove to be the most important storyline or thread coming out of that story And it's a topic we will talk about later this week. Uh, There are certainly those of you who are interested in the storyline of our fellow Christians in the Nineveh Plain. Uh, You have already been praying for Iraqi Christians displaced by ISIS. You have already been helping to fund efforts for them to return and rebuild their churches, their homes, their lives, their schools, their hospitals, their roads, on and on and on and on. Uh, For you, the headlines this weekend are really substantively related to the Pope's historic visit to Iraq. It was more than symbolic, although the symbolic power of the visit should not be underestimated. The Pope literally embodied hope in a place and to a people who um, have good reason to feel forsaken. And so that will be uh, a storyline we'll be talking about this week as well. Um, But I think that for most people, both here in the United States and around the world, um, whether or not we recognize it, the anniversary of COVID-19 actually being called a pandemic, actually the word actually being used, the conversation actually moving in that direction for people who have lost a family member, a friend, a colleague, for those who have lost businesses or jobs because of COVID, for those who have kids that who have lost uh, a year or more of education because of COVID, uh, for those who have lost faith. I mean, there are just all kinds of things that have happened um, in the midst of this pandemic that has now been ongoing for a year. The reality of the one-year anniversary of the pandemic is significant, and it's going to drive your feed this week. 
So we are not out of the woods yet, but the light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And for uh, that storyline, we are going to pick up again today with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back. Joining me now, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. You can follow him on Twitter at FarmDHikerFarm, not like a farm you live on, but farm like a pharmacy you go to. There you go, Farm D Hiker. All right. Hey, Zach, welcome back. Good morning. How are you? I Well, I am well. I am well. So um, uh, here would be my COVID roundup. And uh, so you can grade me on this, Professor. The United States has <laughs> confirmed a little over 37,000 new cases of COVID in uh, just yesterday. That's according to the John Hopkins University COVID-19 dashboard. Uh, let's see, 3.2% of the 1.156 million tests reported coming back positive. So I don't know, 3.2% positivity in terms of tests. Is that good? Like, see, this is where we don't even know if that's good or bad anymore. Yeah. So, so you're actually raising a really good question. One one thing you're probably going to hear about moving forward are number of new cases per, per every 100,000 people which is sort of a measurement of prevalence. And so what we've seen, you know, here in, in Ohio, where I'm at, for example, we had, I think, about 700 and some cases per 100,000 people back in December. But as of March 1st, we were down to about 150 new cases per every 100,000 people. So what that tells us is the prevalence is going down. So the movement of it through our community is slowing down. And that's kind of what we're seeing around the country as well. All right. So that's good news. That sounds like a good news thing. Um, Anything else on sort of a general COVID update we want to cover before we move into a conversation about vaccines? Well, actually, as far as general updates go, I think vaccines are probably where I would be heading next as well. (laughs) Fantastic. Let's go there. All right. So um, we can talk about vaccines in general. Um, I know that there are people who want to, you know, they they want to know like when they can get it. And that's so state specific that Zach and I probably really can't address that very effectively. But maybe um, talk about um, what you're seeing and what you're hearing, Zach, and then let's focus in on the J&J vaccine. So we were hit by winter storms uh, a number of weeks ago now. And I think one thing to kind of keep in mind is, is that uh, has really had some downstream consequences as far as vaccine production and distribution. So the actual ingredients that are used to make vaccines, for example, um, they have to travel to from one facility to different facilities in order to get this vaccine produced. So that actually slowed down. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, the distribution networks were slowed down by some of the, the snow as well. So we're trying to play catch up from where we left off uh, and we're starting to see some of those effects. But the good news is they are saying that at least by the end of the spring here, most Americans will have access, have had access to at least a single dose of a vaccine. Um, and then if we're looking at what's happening right now, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine just received FDA approval a uh, week before last now. So we have yet another one entering the scene. And there's some resistance. I mean, like uh, not 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 like a physical body resistance, but a uh, a spiritual for some people resistance to the J&J mm-hmm. vaccine. Um, and we recognize that and um, 
we have talked about that with our friends at the Christian Medical and Dental Association. If you guys want to go back and grab those podcasts, um, let's talk a little bit about the efficacy against variants or how does the introduction of vaccines into a population affect the virus itself? Like, will it move it to mutate and there will then be more variants? So as far as how variants are created, what ends up happening is if you think about a virus almost like um, a printer or, or, or mm. your cell almost like a printer and your virus is sending instructions to that printer, every so often when you print something, your printer can misalign and you get pieces of paper that have things you don't want on them, right? But with the virus, it's kind of a similar thing. When they tell your cell to print more of itself, then as the viruses replicate, sometimes they have these mutations that occur. And those mutations are not always a good thing. In fact, a lot of times they end up killing off the virus and you know making it ineffective. But on occasion, one of those in that replication process kind of selects out and becomes better. And so that's where these variants are really born. And as far as how the vaccine plays with that, um, when you sh when you slow down transmission of a virus in a community, what ends up happening in that case is you basically slow down the production of those mutations that occur. There's less viral viral entities moving through communities. So that's that's one of the um, big benefits of having herd immunity and vaccination as well. You slow down var variants and make it less likely you have a problem with them. Every time I hear the word herd immunity, I I don't know. I think about a herd of animals running across like, this, like cattle. Like, yeah, I feel like, the same way. Yeah, <laughs> well, or like um, more more like um, the African savanna and like a herd of animals that are you know like really much more interesting to me than maybe cattle. But there you go. Okay, <laughs> so I know I can't help it. Like that's where my brain goes. Let's talk a little bit about antibodies from South African from the South African variant. Yeah, so, so there are a couple of things that are they're worth noting about the South African variant that we've been seeing this virus, and one of which is that we've seen a reduction in activity from all the different vaccines in circulation. Um, so there's some thought now as we're, we're developing uh, booster shots or modifications to vaccines for people who haven't had them yet that, that'll cover for these variants. The thought is, well, hey, what we're seeing is that this, uh, this variant from South Africa, if we actually target that, over some of these other variants that are circulating, they think there may be some cross-protection. So if you basically make that your, your big focus, you don't lose as much efficacy with these different vaccines. That's some of the observational data that they're starting to see right now. Um, and I think it is kind of encouraging. And I know there's a lot of uh, sometimes discouraging things about vaccine efficacy and things like that from, from the media right now. But the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, for example, is worth mentioning just because they studied their activity against patients that had the South African variant as a portion of the group they looked at. And they saw that, yeah, they did have a decrease, but it still had effect at decreasing hospitalizations and decreasing um, people with severe illness. And so you could probably extrapolate the same kind of concepts to these other vaccines. But even so, we want to try to modify them to specifically target this variant from South Africa. I'm talking with Dr. Zach Jenkins. Um, we have now been talking for a year about what we now call COVID-19. At the time, a year ago, we didn't even have uh, a, a, a good name for it, but um, it is COVID-19, and Zach Jenkins has graciously been joining us now for a year talking about this, and we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment.
So continue my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Um, Zach, uh, a year ago this week was the first time that media outlets used the word pandemic. Um, and the kinds of splainers that were out there a year ago and predictive models and people, uh, even some people at that point, you know, absolutely considering the whole thing a hoax. Um it, it has been quite a year. I'm just wondering before we return to specific headlines related to this week, if you just want to take a moment to reflect on that. Oh, uh, you know, at least from my perspective, it's it's been a very rough year. And I know a lot of people feel that um, from, from my from my perspective, it's it's been, you know, seeing uh, people kind of being hailed as as heroes suddenly becoming the villains. Um, and And then through that whole mess, you also have so much good information, bad information, questionable information going out there. Um, and it's it's been very, very hard to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff in a lot of ways. And so I've just I've been personally very knee deep in this at my hospital, at the university, et cetera, since this began. Um, let's just say I'll be very happy when we move on from this. But the good news is I think that day is coming. A lot of these models are starting to, starting to suggest this could really fizzle out by July. Which would be so exciting. And, and you know, other storylines just in your own family, right? I mean, there's, you know, your yeah. wife is an educator. I mean, like, I just think about all of the ways in which you have engaged in this storyline. And I guess I'm hoping that at some point um, you'll get enough space to, um, you know, really reflect because you have experienced this in a myriad of ways and you do so as a person of faith. And that um, that adds a layer to the conversation that's really, really important for Christians going forward. You know, what? how did we respond um, as better information became available? How did we react and respond to other people um, in the midst of this? What did you see, um, you know, not only in your hospital and in your community and your u- university, but, you know, from the rest of us as we engaged this very new um, experience in the church um, and in the nation and certainly around the world. So we just, we just really appreciate you continuing to give your input. Let's talk a little bit about vaccines for kids. First of all, there's a there's a win question here. Um, I think there's probably a whole lot of people asking the, uh, yeah, I don't ever intend to vaccinate my kids related to this. So can you just speak into that? Yeah, so really as far as when, the studies right now have looked at, I think with Pfizer specifically, they looked all the way down to about 16 years of age. Um, under that, we don't really have a lot of data. And so what they're going to be doing for really the next several months is trying to enroll children of different age groups, not all the way down to being babies or anything like that, but different age groups into these vaccine trials to basically say, like, how do you handle it in this age range? Does it change at all? And so that's going to be happening for the next for the next part of the year here. We may have some data by the end of the year, but I, I would be surprised if we really have vaccine moving before like late fall, for example. I just don't think that's a that's a reality that we would have. Um, but but then the next question is probably okay. Well, do we need these in kids? Um, you know, it, it, I think only from the perspective of could it slow down transmission in a community? Sure, mm. but even so, the data for transmission with kids. It's pretty pretty limited, even from kids to adults, from kids to kids. We just don't see that. 
And and the body of evidence for that has been growing significantly for the last several months. We do know that children above the age of 12, though, spread it like adults. They carry the same amount of virus. So I think I think there's probably um, a good place we have to meet in the middle on that subject because there's probably older children that are still as susceptible and their risk maybe goes up a little bit. Um, so that's probably that where that ongoing conversation, I think, is going to land us. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of people listening right now who um, are wondering about sort of the you're going to have to prove you've been vaccinated in order to and then fill in the blank, um, enter, you know, enter a particular business or um, get on an airplane or go to a theme park or travel. Or, like so though that uh, you and I may not be prepared to talk about that today, but let's have that sort of teed up for a future conversation Um because I think that there's just a lot of folks who are going to want to want to examine that from a Christian worldview and be like, you know, what does that look like and what does that mean and what does that not? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about that. Um, blood types and COVID. Can we touch on that story? <laughs> right. So so there's been a lot of stuff over the past several months about, you know, whether or not certain blood types are a higher risk of having COVID. And a lot of literature has pointed to maybe type A, which, yeah, congratulations for me, I am a type A blood type. <laughs> Um, tend to be at a higher risk of COVID. We don't really, we didn't really understand why. And some of the data, when they looked at just the blood in a laboratory setting, didn't really seem to indicate that type A alone was doing it. What they found, though, is that parts of type A that are expressed on your lung tissue, that actually seems to be associated with an increased risk of um, having a worse case of COVID. It tends to, I think, catch more COVID. You absorb more is one of the theories right now. And so that seems to be the case. I, I would say, like, if I were telling someone it does blood type affect, I'd say, yeah, type A seems to affect it. What we don't know is how much relative to a lot of the other risks that we know are circulating. You know, when um, when you say type A in other groups and other environments, it's not about blood. <laughs> like, like I'm like waiting for the study of like, mm, there's a personality type related to this. And right. No, no. But I mean, they'll study everything, right? I mean, eventually... There's, this is going to be um, a real opportunity for people across just a huge number of, uh, of of research interests to actually study something that has never been studied before. And there's going to be more data available on this than, um, you know, than researchers in the past have had on almost anything because the research is going to be or the data is yeah. global. It's kind of cool. It's it's cool. It also presents a lot of challenges. Um, we have a lot of bad data coming out there, too, mm. where people are designing studies that are not uh, well conceived or there are a lot of there's a lot of bias that gets introduced into them. And so it directly affects the results. So it's really difficult to weed those out, especially since so much of it's getting put on these pre-publication servers that don't undergo peer review. Um, so so that, that's been a challenge. But I think we're going to see a lot of this stuff continue after COVID's gone, where people look back and say, well, you know, gee, we're locked down is the best strategy. Let's look at that. And, and there's going to be a lot of like after studies about like the impact to kids and, and a lot of the other things we've been seeing. Yeah, no question about it. Um, I'm always reminded when we talk that information um, just is not presented in a vacuum. And I have to like look at the date of something. I have to look at the origin of something. I have to look and see if there is more current information available on the same topic. And so you know, for our listeners today who might be tempted to pass along to others something that they have received on social media in relationship to COVID or COVID research or findings, 
um, let's just all be very, very mindful. This is still an evolving story and an evolving storyline. Um, and we want to be as accurate as possible as people of truth. Um, so, Zach, yeah, thank you. I that better. Yeah. There, well, prior to even COVID happening, we had over 10,000 medical articles that were new published every day. Hmm. So if you think about that, what, what COVID's done is it's exacerbated it well beyond that. Uh, so hard to weed through that information. Yeah, I had a guest who said, you know, pastors, um, we weren't trying to be epidemiologists. Like, why are people making us do that? I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> so um, thank you to the people who have the real uh, medical degrees and their willingness to talk with us. Zach Jenkins, thank you, um, as always, so very much. Absolutely. We'll talk with you again next week. All right. That's Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. He's on the front line of all of this, and we appreciate uh, his visiting with us. we got to take a break for Knowing God. We'll be right back. fun live stream event with Nicole Phillips. She is uh, a kindness advocate. I call her a kindness provocateur. She's been on the show before. Um, She has written three books on the topic. Kindness is contagious. Kindness is courageous. Uh, The Negativity Remedy. Those are uh, three of her books. You can find her at NicoleJPhillips.com. Why am I saying all this? Well, because the live stream is something you can still watch. So it is currently posted at MyFaithRadio.com. If you go there, you'll see the, um, it's like, you know, one of the big banners on the website right now. And if you watch it at the very end, you get instructions for actually how to enter our kindness, uh, uh, called to kindness giveaway. And you're saying to yourself, can you just give me the information? Well, yeah, I could, but where would the fun in that be? So go to uh, MyFaithRadio.com Check out my live stream event last night with Nicole Phillips and get your information about how to enter the big call to kindness giveaway. All right. So here's the secret. MyFaithRadio.com backslash giveaway. Uh See, if you were listening live this morning, you might have access to all the good stuff. All right. uh, Next up, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We got all kinds of things to talk about. We'll be right back. I meet a lot of parents who wonder why their teen is so irresponsible. Hey, teens will always act immature because they're still growing up. But sometimes mom and dad are getting in the way. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Are you an overly responsible parent? Raising an irresponsible teen? When you do everything for your kid, it does nothing more than postpone his or her potential to grow up. In fact, when you step in and protect them from the natural consequences to their behavior, you're actually stifling creativity and limiting motivation. Let go of all the stuff you're doing on their behalf. Quit trying to rescue your teen from the hard knocks of life. Who knows, if you step out, they might just step up. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Welcome back, sir. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. So I feel like it wasn't that long ago that uh, 
brand new, like fresh President Biden uh, told us there would be a one point nine trillion dollar stimulus. And um, nobody thought that was going to happen, frankly. Uh, And now it is almost a certainty. The Senate has passed uh, along completely partisan lines, a sweeping one point nine trillion dollar stimulus package. Um, and it now goes to the House, which is expected to vote on it tomorrow or take it up tomorrow. Um, why don't you brief people in on what's going on here? Right. And and if there's some confusion about why the House has to vote on it when they seem to vote on it before, it's that there were changes in the Senate bill and the House and Senate have to pass the exact same one to go to the president. And yes, that this was a big part of what President Biden ran on, not necessarily this particular exact package, but that he was going to pass COVID relief and that he was going to do it in in a big way that he thought it hadn't been big enough before. And, uh, you know, it, it, there was the, the statement in the mid nineties that president Clinton famously made at a state of the union address that the era of big government is over. If we didn't have a, Hmm. if it wasn't sure that it was, uh, that if it wasn't sure that that was over, that we're now back into an era of it, uh, this certainly would cement that. And so you're going to see lots and lots of more spending. Yes, for relief for people that aren't employed, people that uh, have been hurting, but also lots of other households. They're not really restricting it tightly, I think, based on needs. But also lots and and this is where I think it lost a lot of Republican support, a whole lot of other side packages, some of the more extreme ones like a $15 minimum wage were were shot down, but uh, a lot of other things, too, that uh, really, uh, you know, made it a bit of a grab bag for uh, the, the more Democratic priorities, not just COVID relief. So I think those are some of the big takeaways to think about as 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 this bill goes through the House tomorrow. So the conversation uh, <clears throat> at our uh, in our family sometimes goes like this. Yes, the, here are the meat and potatoes. Like, here's the thing. And then here are all the sides. And let's just say this is a um, this is a buffet of sides in many, many cases. Yes. So that'll be a conversation going forward. Yeah, it shows a, a a also a problem, even if you liked everything in the bill, it shows a problem with how our lawmakers make laws, because laws are supposed to be understandable to the people that pass them. They're supposed to be understandable to the people that are that have to abide by them. And uh, what you now have is instead of bills that are written for specific purposes and are united by that purpose, they've become a bit, like you said, a a grab bag or 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 the buffet is a good, good example, Uh, but not a healthy one because it really means that it creates confusion and allows for corruption because of lack of knowledge about what's even going on. It actually props up ignorance in the way that it, it tries to establish laws. Yeah, because there's just stuff in there that just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't go together. Um, I mean, there are certain sides that are appropriate at Thanksgiving and others that are not. And so there you go. All right. Um, Let's um, let's talk about uh, the reality of the vote on this. Maybe not surprising that this particular piece of legislation would be down absolutely party lines. Unfortunate. But there's a lot of other ways in which the Democrats are just going it alone. I mean, you know, any sort of bipartisan hope um, seems to be completely gone. Yes, and and this is interesting because they're even being out loud about their calculation, which is they felt that they had the choice, and I'm not saying it's the right choice, between 
they thought if they appeared bipartisan that they would get nothing done, that they are they're they don't trust the Republicans to work with them. Whether that's true or not uh, is is a different question. Um, and so they wanted they thought we could try to be part bipartisan and not feel like we got much done, or we could ramrod through things on on party line votes and then pitch our uh, activeness. and And I think another thing to keep in mind here is, that on one hand, they have to keep their more moderate wing happy, like uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who's uh, definitely the most moderate Democrat. But they're also having to keep their left flank together. And it's interesting that in in what, what when President Biden pitched himself as the bipartisan president, the one that would seek deals, they really have very quickly scuttled that. And you're right, they're going to they're they're pushing a whole host of bills on uh, election reform uh, that that has a number of elements that I think are troubling. They are pushing uh, a number of other uh, uh, left wing policies on 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 other elements that I, I think a number of things that you saw passed by the House and not taken up by the Senate under President Obama or President uh, Trump's term. So it's going to be interesting to see whether these get any traction in the Senate because of the 50-50 split. But given the, the coronavirus package vote, it seems like the if the Democrats stay united, that you might see a number of things go through that uh, would not be bipartisan in the least. All right, let's um, take a brief break and then let's come back and have that election reform conversation that you just alluded to. I'm talking with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, um, you you alluded there to election reform. Tell us what is um, what's in that particular uh, act. The House has passed a For the People Act. Uh, tell us about that. Right. It, and it's sometimes called H.R. 1, and that was symbolic, the first House resolution that was put out for this new Congress. And... What it obviously uh, election reform is a more uh, benign term as far as trying, uh, you know, claiming to try to make things better. But what I think it's going to sweepingly do is take some of the things that were done for the this past election that were very much based in the pandemic and the trying to keep people safe will keep voting open in the pandemic and make them required mandated regular, uh, uh, the regular part of elections. So massively expand vo uh, voter, uh, uh, being able to vote remotely, being able to vote early, massively base, uh, setting it up where almost everyone is automatically registered to vote, doing a number of things along those lines. And I think that in some ways, that's the wrong lesson to learn from the last election, because it 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 um, is is taking things that I think should be atypical and making them typical, and therefore making election day not really election day. I think it's also is troubling for those who still believe in federalism, because I think it is trying. It's 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 a big step closer to nationalizing elections, which I think is problem. We've always a problem act. We've always had state run elections, and hidden in it are some very vague attempts to regulate how groups 
with a certain perspective, uh, a belief in certain issues, belief in certain candidates, can communicate with the public, can make their case, which I think, especially because of how vague they are, could have troubling, uh, could be used badly by bureaucrats to stifle speech that they don't don't like. I think these are done under the attempt to stop what's called fake new, news or other things like that. But uh, in doing so, I think it really opens up some troubling problems for will government bureaucrats try to control the flow of debate and ideas in election cycles. So a number of problems with it. I'm not saying everything about it's bad. I think there's some bolstering of election security that's actually a really good thing. But in general, I think there's a lot of problems with the history of our country's elections, with the importance of having an election day, and then with the free flow of ideas all of which I think are being would be undermined in practice by this bill. Yeah, I love actual election day. Like I think there is something really unifying about everybody, you know, going out to the polls on a particular day. And I certainly recognize that um, there are people who, for particular reasons, need to vote um, absentee. But I would like to see that be a very small number, not the overwhelming majority of how votes are gathered. Um, and I. I am, you know, I'm concerned about uh, election security when um, when we are voting remotely and when we're not really sure, you know, who lives where. And I mean, you know, just on and on and on. I mean, all the concerns that everybody probably has related to that. Um, police reform is also um, uh, in front of us today in in Minneapolis. The uh, the trial begins or at least the jury selection begins uh, in relationship to the Derek Chauvin Uh, case, uh, which is the George Floyd case as well. Talk with us about police reform and what the House has done. Right. And and obviously this became a very big issue, partly because of of the George Floyd uh, uh, tragedy, but also because it was a string of tragedies like that that had become very public. And so that the, what the House passed was the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021, uh, passed along very partisan lines, and it, it's a it's a shame that that this has become so partisan, because you know there was another bill put forward that was a little more moderate by Tim Scott from from South Carolina, a Republican senator. I wish they could get together. There's some talk about that. But what this is trying to do, the the broader thing to assess this this and like bills like Scott's, is how do you um, make it so that police can still do their job, that they can still protect, which is their 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 task to enforce the laws in a way that keeps people safe, but also recognize that that sometimes there are certain police that can um, be be corrupt or they can. They can uh, try to, um, you know, they can they can overstep their bounds in a way that what goes way beyond what they should have known to do, and that's the vast, I think, minority of of, of police officers. But how do you balance that? Really, it's Federalist Fifty One, which said that you know, if men were angels, there'd be no need for government, there'd be no need for police. But if government was run by angels, there'd be no need for restraints on them. So, um, uh, the proponents of this bill cite. Uh, l- allowing um, police who do egregious acts 
out really way out of the line of their duty to be sued privately, which is really hard to happen right now under current law. Uh, it tries to eliminate certain things like chokeholds as ways of restraining persons. Um, the other side, though, I think has some legitimate worries that uh, there are elements to the bill that may do to that may uh, handicap cops too much in what they're doing. So this would be a classic case where I think this bill might be a good conversation starter. But if you really had the inclination to do some bipartisan work, I think there could be some common ground on this. Because the other factor is trying to regain some trust in the communities, like the African-American community, other communities that that, that that don't trust those who are supposed to be there to protect them. And trying to make sure that one side has the tools and the other side has the trust is something that that, that really does need done. But I'm not sure that this bill goes, it, it quite strikes that balance that's needed. All right, Adam, I'm curious to know um, what else maybe you have your eye on um, today. Uh, the The president is scheduled to sign an executive order um, today, actually two of them. The White House Gender Policy Council uh, has put forth something. I'll just confess I have not read it yet. Um, But the goal is that they would be combating systemic bias and discrimination, including harassment. Um, That might be an interesting storyline with what's going on in the state of New York in relationship to a Democratic governor there. I'm just uh, what what are you what do you have your eye on in terms of things you're watching this week? Yeah, that's certainly going to be interesting. You know, if you pair pair what happened, the the executive order with what happened with, um, uh, you know, Ryan Anderson's book that was a very Mm. sensible critique of uh, transgender uh, policy and the perspective that one's natural uh, born biological sex can is not natural to stay with, Um, and and part of that's going to be the question of what kind of conversations are we allowed to have? But also it gets down to things we've talked about before about how important it is to 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 affirm a biblical view of, of biology uh, and to do so in a loving and caring way with people who are really struggling with their own identity. Um, and I would say the other thing is, you know, we I gave uh, uh, Governor Cuomo some grief. You were mentioning the charges against him for how he's conducted uh, the coronavirus response. You know, he was very good rhetorically, and we found out not good in most other every other element. Um, I think it's important for people to treat the allegations made against him of a toxic work environment, of sexually harassing uh, 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 those uh, below him in a consistent way with how we've assessed other ones, and to take it very seriously, and to try on something that is so deeply connected to respecting other human beings as as made in the image of God to, uh, to 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 not make this a partisan ploy if you if you went after Republicans when they were accused of this you should do so with him as well and you should do it not because of of, of, of the of the party affiliation but because of your respect and care for human beings and the demand that they be treated as as God created them Okay, and that ultimately comes down to Genesis one twenty seven, Genesis five two. I mean, passages of scripture that actually talk about men and women being created uh, in the image of God, equally image bearers as male and female. He created them. 
um, on this International Women's Day, I find myself um, saying, you know, first of all, I'm not sure that in the past I would have been a person who necessarily thought women needed a particular day. I get a mic every day. Um, But I recognize that globally it's really important because women um, are treated extremely differently in uh, in other parts of the world. And uh, and so I recognize the importance for highlighting this issue. However, the conversation in Washington um, about gender is often not about men and women, and it's often about other things. And so I just want people to be aware of that. Um, and maybe my question to the president today is on International Women's Day, um, if you're going to you know, if you're going to put into place a White House Gender Policy Council, let's be sure we know what gender is and what it means. And um, and let's be sure God gets uh, his say in this through his word, uh, which confirms that we are created male and female. There's not there's not 52 uh, things there. It's it's two male and female. So I just think that, you know, you're highlighting Ryan Anderson's uh, when Harry became Sally. Like that's just, this is a good conversation to be having as Christians um, in the in the view of these particular headlines. I think that's really helpful. Oh, thank you. And I think affirming that there's a beauty to the fact that God made humans and that he made men and women is something that 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 can be celebrated, that there can be equality and distinction, and that that is something that, that, that um, uh, the beauty of God's creation helps us to, to, to strive to respect and, and, and follow. I love that. All right. Uh, I think that um, Dr. Carrington's assignment for us today is that we all go read Federalist 51, because I got to get that angels and men quote, because that was really good. All right. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's I, Dr. I would Adam also Carrington. Say, oh, I'm sure. sorry. I'd also say on uh, International Women's Day, uh, uh, go read some Jane Austen if you want to see how men and women can respectfully interact and a witty woman who understands human nature in a deep way. She'd be a perfect way to celebrate National uh, Women's Day. In my mansplaining opinion. So I should probably just... Okay, so no, uh, that's so good because... So do you, you know Karen Swallow Pryor. Um, my, my guess is that you're at least aware of her. She, um, her... Her like a her like splainer version of Jane Austen is is just rolling out. So if you haven't read it recently or you've never read it and you feel like you're totally intimidated and scared, um, you can grab uh, Karen Swallow Pryor's new splainer version. That's what I'm calling them. They probably have some big fancy name, but anyway, she is uh, one now out on Frankenstein and Jane Austen. So totally worth checking out. All right, well, thanks for giving me a reason to tee that up. You're a good man. Uh, thank you. Good man's hard to find, as another woman <laughs> author just wrote. There you go. That's Dr. Adam Carrington. You can find him in Hillsdale College. He tweets at Carrington AM. We'll be right back. Completely out of time. One hour down, one hour left to go. Stay with us. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.